All right, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today here at All Nations. We are continuing in um, the book of Exodus, and uh, we got a lot of things going on. That was a wonderful missions report, and we actually have communion after the sermon, so uh, I'm going to cut the intro and get right into the text. Um, We're at the 10th and final um, of the plagues, the plagues that the Lord enacted over Egypt. Um, And before, but before the Lord devastates Egypt with the final plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, uh, God instructed his people to observe something known as the Passover meal, the Passover feast. Today's message is going to focus on this meal, and then next week we're going to take an in-depth look at the 10th plague uh, and Israel's exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. Uh, The words are going to go up on the screen, and uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each Uh, can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not, try, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's skip down to verse 21, please. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. 
Amen. The word of the Lord. In America, some of the most significant events in our history, they become national holidays. Some events are so important, they become cultural rituals that we observe every year for generations because they remind us of who we are. They remind us of where we came from. They're part of our conscience and part of our history. This is why we celebrate every 4th of July, Independence Day, Memorial Day, Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Day, and so on and so forth. Right? It's very regular for us as a country to have these uh, monumental moments and turn them into holidays. Even personally, life-changing events for us, they become rituals. They become markers, things that we celebrate every year. Uh, before I got married, October 19th was just another day. And now it's a responsibility, right? Now it's a responsibility. i gotta, I got to show up, right? Before I got married, same thing. I, before I had a kid, January 17th, I think 17th. 17th, right? Just another day. And then, boom, this year, it is my son's first, uh, it's the day my son was born. Absolutely life-changing, right? Absolutely life-changing, right? Every year, I'm going to celebrate God's grace and provision to me and Alice with our son, Seth. Well, for the people of Israel, the Passover was the holiday of holidays, It was such an important event that God actually reoriented their calendar around it. God commanded them in the beginning of our passage, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The Passover took place in March. The Hebrew calendar begins in March and it ends in February, right? That's how important this event was for the Hebrews, that their entire calendar, that their year would wrap around this event. In the Exodus, what God was doing was recreating Israel as a people of his own possession, right? He would be their God, they would be his people, and he wanted every year, that every year that they existed as a people, that they would begin that year remembering the Passover, celebrating the Passover, remembering God as their great deliverer. Last week in Exodus 11, we studied God's final warning to Pharaoh. We learned more about his promises to Israel that this time, after the 10th plague, you will surely be set free and you will plunder Egypt. But before God enacts this final plague, before God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, he has a word for Israel. He has a word for his people and he instructs them here in chapter 12 to observe this Passover meal. Uh, Just as far as a structure goes, right, uh, verses 1 to 13, we have God talking to Moses. And he's instructing Moses on the meaning and the practice of the Passover. Then in verses 14 to 20, we have instructions regarding this thing called the festival of the unleavened bread, right? I didn't read the passage. I'm not going to get to talk about it today. But what it is is a seven-day celebration of the Passover, right? And so the Passover is so important, he says, Celebrate the Passover, and then for seven more days, I want you to have this festival, Festival of the Unleavened Bread, uh, to remember and practice uh, this Passover and be my holy, holy people. Um, They actually didn't do it in the Exodus. It was for the years after. It was for the years after, just to let you guys know if you're reading it and getting a little bit confused. Uh, God was just beforehand giving them instruction that later generations, later years, that they are to observe the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. And then our passage closes with verses 21 to 28. And Moses is speaking to Israel. 
He's speaking to the elders of Israel regarding the Passover, and then we have their response as they bow and worship Yahweh. As we unpack this text, I want us to look at three things. First, the need for the Passover. Second, the power of the Passover. And finally, remembering the Passover. Okay, so why do we need it? Where does the power come from? Where's the power in this event? And finally, uh, remembering it. What does that mean? Okay, what does it mean to remember the Passover? Now, when you read the story of the 10th plague, um, you may ask, like, why was this even necessary? Why was the Passover even necessary? I mean, God did the plague of darkness, three days of darkness. Israel is spared. He already had that conversation with Moses and Pharaoh about the 10th plague coming. Why didn't he just strike down Pharaoh's son, strike down the firstborn of Egypt, and then boom, they get to go. Israel can be free. They can cross the Red Sea and get on with it. Why is the Passover necessary, right? Well, the answer is this. The reason why the Passover is necessary It's because the 10th plague was unlike any of the previous plagues. It was truly distinct and set apart from the previous nine plagues. How so? Um, The reason is because it was a work of God entirely. It was a work of God without any mediation from Moses or Aaron. You guys remember the first plague, the plague where the Nile becomes the water? What happens is Moses commands his brother Aaron, take your staff. Lift it up, strike the Nile. Aaron does it. He strikes the Nile, and the moment he does, the Nile turns into blood. Now, it's not that Aaron had the power. It's not that Moses had the power, but it was God using these men as his instruments. They were part of God's will and work in the plagues. Third plague, the plague of the gnats. Same thing happens, right? The staff is lifted, hits the dust of the ground. The dust turns into gnats and plagues Egypt, This 10th plague, though, Moses, Aaron, passive. They're passive. In the final plague, it's God himself who comes to enact judgment over Egypt. God himself was coming to Egypt in the form of the destroyer. We may know him as the angel of death, right? But our scriptures simply call him the destroyer. That's, as our millennials would say, that's savage, right? That's scary. God the destroyer. And in this 10th plague, humanity would come face to face with a holy and mighty God. British theologian Alex Mateer, he has a powerful quote on what sets the 10th plague apart. What's so special about it? This is what it says, though. Words are going to go up on the screen. This intervention changed the whole situation. For when Yahweh entered Egypt as absolute Lord and judge, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh but how to be safe before such a God. You guys get that? When God comes into Egypt as the destroyer, Israel's problem was bigger than Pharaoh. It was bigger than just the nation and the armies of Egypt. It was God himself that would come in his holiness and in his judgment and his righteousness, and how would they be safe? In the first nine plagues, what God is doing is he's using creation against Egypt. God is using creation according to a sovereign hand and will. And it was a simple task. Darkness over Egypt, light over Goshen. Goshen's where Israel was. He's just lording over creation. He could send the locusts to devour the crops and the harvests of the Egyptians and tell the locusts to stay away, stay away from the Hebrews. 
He could cause hail to fall on the land of Egypt, everywhere over Egypt, except for where the Hebrews were residing. Why? Because God is a Lord of creation. He could dictate, he could direct creation as he so pleased. But in this last plague, God himself is coming. God in his holiness, God in his judgment, God in his power, and God is undivided. He's undivided. Okay, All of himself is in play. All of himself is revealed. All of himself is united in his person and in his work. So he can't come down to Egypt and then show one face to Israel, his face of love and grace, and then the other face is holiness, his power, his judgment. It is all of God, all of the time. So it's not just Pharaoh who's in danger of meeting his maker. It's everyone. In this 10th plague, Everyone is in danger of meeting Yahweh. And who can stand? Unprotected, unsheltered in the presence of God. You guys have all taken uh, x-rays at a dentist, right? If you haven't, go, right? If your mouth hurts, it's probably why, right? Uh, We've all taken x-rays at the dentist before. And when this happens, the dental assistants, they come and and, and they get the machine and they aim it at our mouths. But before they fire and shoot the x-ray, what do they do? They put a lead vest over your body, over your chest as protection from the radiation. The machine may be targeted at your teeth. The machine may be targeted at your mouth, but we need protection over our bodies. The same is so with the 10th plague. God may be targeting Pharaoh. He may be targeting Egypt in judgment and in power to free his people. But as God visits Egypt and Israel's still in Egypt, they need protection. They need safety. This is why the Passover was necessary. God was coming to Egypt. Israel was still there. You see, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they weren't the only ones in danger before God's presence. They weren't the only ones in sin. The scriptures remind us, no one is righteous, not even one. I love Romans 5.12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin was a problem that was not just for Pharaoh, not just for Egypt, it was for Moses. It was for Aaron. It was for all of Israel. They were struggling with the problem of sin. The Passover is necessary because God's people needed protection from God, right? God's people as fallen, sinful men and women. They needed protection from God. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia, right, where Mr. Beaver is describing Aslan. And Aslan is good, but he's not safe. You guys remember that line? Aslan is good, but he is not safe. Brothers and sisters, this is God. He is good, but he is not safe. Who can stand before the presence of God? How would Israel be spared? How could they be safe before such a God? This is why they needed a Passover, right? This points us to our second point, the power of the Passover. How does this right? How does this meal, how does this feast Protect the people of God from the destroyer. How does this happen? God commanded every household in, uh, among the uh, Israelites to set aside a lamb without blemish. Okay? No defects, no faults. You can't give God the three-legged lamb. Okay? Uh, read Malachi. That is not good. Right? God will not be pleased with that. A male one year old. 
And if a household was too small for a lamb, they couldn't, they couldn't consume it, and, and it was too much, they could share a lamb with a neighbor. And at twilight, that is sunset, they were commanded to kill the lamb, take its blood in a basin, and spread it across the doorposts and the top frame, known as the lentil. Right? They were to roast the lamb, not boil it, not eat it raw, so no lamb tartare for the foodies. It was to be a burnt offering unto the Lord. And this next part, my grandmother would just like cringe if you had any leftovers. You can't take it home. You can't, you can't take it on your journey. Any leftovers of that, blem- uh, of that, that pristine, right, perfect lamb, you got to let it burn. You have to let it be consumed in full. Why? Because this lamb didn't belong to you. It belonged to God. It didn't belong to your children. It didn't belong to your family. This lamb was to be a burnt offering unto the Lord. And they were commanded to eat it with bitter herbs. Why the bitter herbs? Theologians all say it's so that Israel would be reminded of the bitterness of slavery the bitterness of Pharaoh's yoke, the bitterness of their time in Egypt, and ultimately the bitterness of their sin. And they were commanded to eat it with unleavened bread. That is bread without yeast. Okay, why? Because it tastes better? Because it's healthier? No, because they are in haste. Okay, You want to bake bread with yeast? That's creating a starter. You take the dough and you add the yeast, and generally a baker will put it like in some kind of like refrigeration unit overnight to let it set, to let the yeast rise and bake it. That's how you get the best bread. But God's point to them is you do not have time. You are in haste. Salvation is coming. Judgment is coming. So on top of all of that, the bitter food, the yeastless bread, wear your belt, strap your sandals, hold your staff, and eat the meal because you are in haste. God is coming. Deliverance is coming. Be ready to go. And in verse 13, God declared, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, here we see the power of the Passover. The power of the Passover is in the blood of the lamb. Without the blood, this is, this is what God says. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's not when I see that you are Jewish or when I see that, that, that you are a Hebrew or a family relative to Moses or that you are righteous and you know the Torah or anything like that. It's when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Without the blood, your firstborn will die. If you have the blood of the lamb, your family is spared. But here's the fact. I think a lot of times when we read the story, we think, man, the angel of death, the destroyer, just wrecked the Egyptians and spared the Hebrews, spared Israel. But if you really think about it, you see, death came to every household at the Passover. There was death in every household. You either lost your beloved son or you lost your precious lamb. That lamb without blemish, that male one year old, And that lamb was killed, that lamb was slayed as a substitute for your firstborn, as a substitute for your family. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the good news of God. This is how God's people are saved and spared 
We see it first in the story of Abraham. You guys remember Genesis and the story of Abraham? God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And this was hard for Abraham to understand because he and, and Sarai, they had no children. They were old of age. They had tried for a long time, no kids. Finally, by God's providence, they received the son of promise, Isaac. And in order to test Abraham's faith, he says, take my son, go up to the mountain and sacrifice him. That's devastating. So weighty, but Abraham is the father of faith and he believed. He believed, he obeys God, he takes Isaac, even puts the wood on his back and he says, you carry the firewood for your altar, which is crazy. And he takes him to the mountaintop and as Abraham lifts his knife against his son to obey his God, God commands him to stop. He says, now I know that you fear me. Now that I know you will not withhold anything from me, that you truly have faith. And in the bush next door or nearby in the thicket, there is a ram caught there and That ram served as a substitute. God provided a substitute for Isaac, a substitute for Abraham's firstborn. God provided what was required. We see this provision in the Passover here and all throughout the Old Testament. The holiest day, okay, the holiest day for the Jews, it was a holiday called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the high priest would make a sacrifice. A sacrifice of an animal without blemish. Absolutely perfect. He would go into the Holy of Holies and take the blood and and sprinkle the blood of this goat on the altar. Why? For the sins of Israel. That God would have mercy on Israel. That God would forgive Israel for all of her sins. Substitution. Death. Forgiveness and salvation. And ultimately, we see this story in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist first lays eyes on Jesus, or not first time, but when he beholds Jesus passing by, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, there's this beautiful progression that takes place throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, it's one lamb to save one child. In Exodus, it's one lamb to save one family. Throughout the Old Testament, it's one lamb to save one nation. And through Jesus Christ, it's one lamb to save the world, to save one people, God's people. This is the story of the gospel that our Father in heaven, he sent and sacrificed his only begotten son, on the cross so that you and I could be spared, so that we could be safe in his presence, so that we could be a people of his own possession. And this is the great, I don't want to say irony, but the paradox of the gospel, the paradox of these these offering stories. What does God require? Obedience, holiness, righteousness, but everyone falls short. God has set a requirement of perfection from his people. Nobody is able to live up, and what God does is he provides what he requires. 
He provides what he demands because he sees our failure. He sees our inadequacy. And so we also see not only the power of the Passover, the blood of the lamb, but we also see the basis of the Passover. I shared this earlier. It wasn't ethnic. God didn't say, what ethnicity are you? And if you're wrong, you're not going to get blessed. It wasn't based on morality. It wasn't based on power or meekness, whether you are rich or poor, circumcised or uncircumcised. Circumcised. None of those worldly, cultural metrics were the basis of salvation. The only thing that spared Israel was the blood of the Lamb. That's the only thing. If any Jewish household didn't obey, if any Jewish household said, I will not give up my precious lamb, right? I will not give this up. This is hocus pocus. Moses, what are you talking about? What do you mean the blood of a lamb over my doorpost is going to save me from the destroyer? If anyone disobeyed, they would have lost. They would have lost their beloved son, right? It's not based on ethnicity, nothing in this world. The basis was the blood of the lamb. And the same is true for us. Do you guys really believe that if we, that when we stand before the presence of God, the only thing that matters is Jesus? Do you believe that? Or do some of you kind of feel like, have I been tithing? Have I been praying? Oh, I just went on a mission trip. I feel okay, right? Have I been reading my Bible Okay, have, I, have I been good? Have I, have I been living um, a, an upright and, 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 and moral life to the best of my ability? Do you truly believe that as you stand before the presence of God, the only thing that matters is the blood of the lamb? Because if you truly believe this, do you know what happens? Do you know what your life looks like? You become a humble person. You become a humble person. You come to realize that God does not accept you on the basis of your goodness, your obedience, your righteousness, your performance. You come to realize that God loves you and saves you wholly on the basis of grace. Do you guys see that? Do you believe that? That God provides all that is required. We didn't provide it. He made the sacrifice, not you. And I know in the church and in this context, that sounds really good. But if we are all honest, um, uh, we want credit and we don't like it when people do our work. I mean, just think about your own lives. Okay? If you're starting a, a new job and uh, your manager comes down and sees you doing your work and says you're doing it all wrong and does it for you. The first time you're like, thank you. If he comes in and does it every day, morning and evening, you start feeling what? Small, insignificant, insecure. You're like, stop patronizing me. I can do this. You don't have to carry that for me. You don't have to correct everything for me. You don't have to, right? It makes us feel childish and weak. We want to perform, right? We want credit. We want to be capable and competent. Guys, I I struggle with this in so many ways. You see, uh, I am a person who naturally values kind of uh, respect and competence. I really uh, really like skill and responsibility and reliability. And um, there's this thing called heart idols. Uh, This uh, pastor named Min Chung uh, in Chicago, he, he, it was his, um, 
his uh, doctorate dissertation, and you might have heard them, like, you know, love me, like me, respect me, perfect me, right? And I was actually talking to him this past year, and I said, you know, um, I, I feel like I'm struggling with pride. And he asked me, hey, do you know your heart motive? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's respect me. And he told me, Michael, respect me. They see everyone, they view everyone in hierarchy, hierarchy. And the crazy thing, the dangerous thing about respect me is you have both simultaneously a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, right? Does that that make sense? So so I see everyone in hierarchy, and I both have a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, and, 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 and that's a dangerous thing. And so what do I do? Pastor Men said the only way out is humility and grace. The only way out is humility and grace. To recognize that I'm a pastor here, that our ministry is what it is, not because of my competence, skill, not because I'm such a good recruiter of talent and brought Dag and DC and Paul and all these guys in. They're, they're killing it. They're awesome, right? It's not me. It's all of the grace of God. Humility is the mark of whether or not I understand God's grace. And also, it's not just us as we stand before God If you understand the gospel, if you've been touched by the blood of the lamb, transformed by the blood of the lamb, it it changes your relationships with one another. There are a lot of marriages here that are struggling. And one of the main reasons why you're struggling is because there's a lack of grace in your relationship. You want more from the other person. You say, I need you to do more of this, less of this. All of our conflict, it's because you are not performing the right way. If you would just do what I told you to do, we would be fine. Our finances would be fine. Our kids would be crushing it. Instead, they're getting crushed, right? It's your fault because you're not listening to me. And the other spouse is like, oh, my gosh, we would be in a healthy relationship if you just leave me alone, right? But in all of those things, it's it's pride, right? It's self-centeredness. It's a desire to control. There's no humility. There's no grace. There's some of you here that are looking for community. You're looking for friendship. And in our church, you know, you've been coming out for months, weeks, maybe years. And even though we have the number of people that we do, you're just like, man, I can't find community. I can't find community. If I do a follow-up, I say, why? What are you looking for? It's like, I just can't find people at my level. People at my level, spiritually mature like me, who are passionate for missions and the gospel like me. Can't find people to, to, to have an accountability group with, right? So I don't have community, right? Or maybe it's not even that. It's just like I just don't have anyone that I have common interests with, right? And so I don't want to invest in people because I, I don't have that natural chemistry and connection with people. Brothers and sisters, don't you see that when we engage with one another, when we measure one another, when we accept or reject one another on those bases, we are not being like God. What is the basis of God accepting us? the blood of the lamb. Who are we to accept or reject one another based on, you're not even in my, you know, life stage, socioeconomic bracket, right? We don't have common interests. Why would I, why would I be in community with you? I want to be like Jesus, friends. I to love like Jesus. You're to accept like Jesus. You had to demonstrate grace like Jesus. What would that look like? in your relationships. The power of the Passover is in the blood of the lamb. 
Remembering the Passover, our final point, our passage ends with Moses' call to remember the Passover from generation to generation. He tells Israel in verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? I love the self-awareness of Moses, right? Because he's saying, yes, I understand that this meal is weird. Your kids are going to say, why is the lamb bitter? You're a better cook than that, mom. You're a better cook than that, dad, right? Why is this lamb gross, right? And then they'll look at you and be like, we're eating. Dad, why are you wearing your sandals? And why are you holding a staff in your hand at the dinner table? Are you going somewhere, right? It's a weird, peculiar event. Moses says, when they ask, because they should ask, because it's weird, you tell them it is the sacrifice to the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. What do we see here? We see that the Passover wasn't just for Moses. And it wasn't just for his generation. It's not merely about the liberation of the Hebrews from under Pharaoh and Egypt. Okay, that's important. God heard their cries. He saw their suffering. He wanted to deliver them. But he was doing far more than that. The Passover is about God establishing an everlasting relationship with his people. Where he would be their God and they would be their people. The Passover is about God giving the people of his covenant a sign and a symbol and an experience they can have over and over again to remember who God is, remember what he's done, and remember who they are from generation to generation. And so as they ate this meal and practiced these peculiar customs, fathers and mothers, they would retell the story of the exodus to their sons and daughters. But that was their, that was their legacy. That was their heritage. Parents, what do you want your legacy to be to your children? Right? I mean, if you can pass one thing off to them, to your children, and to your children's children, what would it be? Would it be wealth, financial security, to set them up for life? Is that good? Is that enough? Right? Is that worthy of your, uh, to be your legacy? God says, I want your legacy, fathers and mothers, to be the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus from generation to generation. And as they remembered the Passover, they united themselves to the God of the Exodus. Right? They united themselves to the God of the Exodus and they longed for the Messiah to come. Passover was a ritual. It was a rhythm that God gave his people so that they would know him, remember him, and experience him. Now, uh, I am really bad with rituals. I'm going to confess, okay? Uh, especially in the context of marriage. I'm really, really bad with rituals, okay? Um, wedding anniversary, uh, my wife's birthday, Christmas, right? Uh, now Mother's Day, right? All of these things. And even from, like, we dated for five years, and when I was dating, I was better, like, you know, because you're trying to lock it down, right? 
Uh, but as soon as we got married, my, my, my paradigm shift, shifted, right? Because now I'm like, wait, you want me to spend how much? Because it's our money. It's our Christmas is like doubly painful, right? Because if she buys me something nice and I buy her something nice, we have one account and it's like depleted, right? So I was like, don't worry about it. Let's just chill. And then like Valentine's Day, gosh, guys, I hate Valentine's Day, right? And I'll try to convince my wife and convince myself that this is just like, it's a cultural gimmick, right? It's just flower companies and candy companies getting us to spend like way too much money on roses and restaurants just trying to like crush you, right? And, and I was like, I don't want to be a part of that cultural scam, right? And my wife is cool. I mean, she's really understanding. I, like her last birthday, I was golfing. I know, but it was a golf trip with a friend from out of town. I know, it's not good enough. Um, <laughs> Mother's Day, okay, our very first Mother's Day, okay, I mean, you would expect me to bring it, right? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't, right? I mean, she asked, hey, Michael, for Mother's Day, can we, can we have my family over for dinner? And I said, yeah, let's do that. And in my mind, I was like, that's Mother's Day. Your parents, your sister, dinner at our house, right? That was not enough. But that's all that gave, Right? Uh, and my, my wife was really gracious about that. But uh, this past week, um, she sat me down and, and had a serious conversation. And she said, I, I, you know, I know that, like, you know, I've been very lenient and we've been okay with uh, not really observing these holidays. She says, but now I need you to. I need you to make an effort. You have to try. You have to do better. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Why? Right? <laughs> But she told me why. She's because I want Seth to see. I want you to show Seth what it looks like to care and appreciate your wife. I want you to show your son what it looks like to honor his mother, to appreciate his mother. I don't want him to see you neglecting me. I don't want him to see you not caring about me. You have to practice the ritual. Because in the ritual, right, in the remembrance, right, those are teachable moments. Teachable moments we get to pass on to our children. This was the story of the Exodus. For parents to show their children from generation to generation, this is your God. This is your God. This is who we are. This is what we live for. Christ, he now calls us to experience the Passover through the lens of the gospel. In the fullness of time, the Messiah came. Jesus was announced as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He would be the one to provide ultimate deliverance for his people. And on the night before he would die on the cross, Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And now you guys have to know this. His disciples are Jewish. They've been having the Passover meal every year for their entire lives. And Jesus has earnestly longed to share the Passover meal with them. And so they go into the upper room of this house. But Jesus' Passover meal is unlike any meal these Jewish men had ever had. Rather than having roasted lamb with bitter herbs, the Passover meal of Jesus consisted of bread and wine, which represented his body and his blood. Jesus says, 
there's no lamb. There's no lamb at this table. Why? Because I am the lamb. I am the lamb of God, sacrificed for your sins and the sins of the world. We're about to move into communion and close our sermons. Would you hear the words of Luke as Jesus speaks to his disciples on the meaning of a gospel-centric Passover meal, the Lord's table? And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Church, I know that for some of you, communion feels like an empty ritual. We do it once a month on the last Sunday of each month. And so you, you go through the motions, right? The music plays, I, I speak too long. You come up and you grab that little morsel of bread and that cup of juice and you say a quick prayer, say, God, I'm sorry, and Jesus, I believe, eat it, down it, and you keep going. And it happens every month over and again. But I want to tell you there's beauty in ritual. When we go beyond the outward actions and press deeper into the meaning of them, we can be transformed. So brothers and sisters, today, remember God. Remember the bitterness of your sin. Remember the darkness of life without God. How chaotic, how meaningless it is when you live for yourself, chasing your own vain dreams. Ask anyone who has accomplished them, anyone who's achieved them, did that satisfy? You got into your dream school, was that enough? You bought your dream car, was that enough? You got your dream job, was that enough? And they say, no, no, it is a bottomless pit. Remember the bitterness. Remember that God, your Father in heaven, remember that he hears your cries and he sees your pain. He did it for Israel. He does it for us. Would you remember that God sent and sacrificed his only begotten son for you? You see, God takes the firstborn of Egypt. It was costly. But that was not a cost that God was unfamiliar with. He sacrificed his firstborn to deliver his people, to deliver you and I. Remember that kind of costly love. Remember the fact that Jesus Christ has given all of himself to save and redeem you. Remember that. Remember that as you take the bread... It's not just an outward action. It's a symbol of a spiritual reality. You're united with Jesus. You are his and he is yours. So don't just throw it in there and chew it down. Remember Jesus, that you are united to him by grace through faith. And as you drink the cup, remember that your sins are washed away. They have been paid for in full. 
by the bloodshed work of Christ. Church, let's remember him. Let's remember him together. One announcement. This table is a holy table and it's only for those who believe. And so if you're not sure where you stand in faith to Jesus, I wanna ask that you would refrain, that you would refrain, that you wouldn't profane these elements, but I pray and I ask that you would consider Jesus today. Make haste, salvation is near. Salvation is near. Would you consider Jesus and put your faith in him as your substitute and as your sacrifice? Let's take a moment in prayer. Let's reflect, remember, and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table as our ushers come forward. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that as we are about to take communion and experience the Passover meal of Jesus, that we would remember much, that we would remember our sin, that we would come to hate it and see its bitterness, that we would turn away from it, but that we would also remember our Savior. Lord, as we take these elements, may the work of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, and the power of Jesus be sweet. Satisfy our souls, O Lord. Help us to find safety and rest in you through the bloodshed work of the Lamb. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.